Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We've been very lucky over the last month with a fantastic team at Bloomberg, including Bloomberg's Maria Tadeo, bringing us some of the conversations out of Brussels and out of the continent as well. And we have another one right now. Hey, Maria. Yes, Jonathan, and we're now joined by Latvia's uh, Defense Minister, Pavlis Atkis, who, of course, he, he's one of the most outspoken ministers, I would say, in, in the European Union when it comes to defense. Sir, you were telling me off camera, Europe really needs a reality check. We need to be much more forceful on Russia. When you say that, what do you mean? I would like to say that uh, the job is half done. Because, uh, yes, we reacted in quite a unitary form as far as the sanctions towards Russia and also as far as the military and humanitarian assistance to Ukraine. But uh, now we are already in the third, fourth week of uh, this aggression from Russian side. And the uh, job is half done because there are still companies in Russia which are functioning for different types of reasons. Then as far as Europe itself, I think we have to go complete with uh, uh, completion of this uh, deep Putinization of these societies where the corrupt, oligarchic, uh, authoritarian Russian um, people have been uh, really uh, very deeply rooted now in these societies and this has to be done. And as far as uh, military and other support to Ukraine, I would say that um, maybe it sounds at the beginning very kind of uh, even dangerous approach, but I think we should consider uh, to reverse this uh, very early escape of number of our embassies uh, from Kiev because the uh, country needs a support, Ukraine needs a support. And, and sir, when you say de-Putinized, I wonder what do you mean by that? And if, and if it means what I think it means, many Europe say that's very provocative, but you say Europe should not be scared of being provocative when it comes to Russia. So, so how do you go about that? Well, first of all, uh, Kremlin thinking about provocation is very simple. If they will be willing to do, they will always find an excuse to tell that this was a provocation. So that's not important. I think we simply should look into the eyes of uh, Kremlin leaders and say, now you committed a crime, you committed aggression, now we will act. And uh, uh, there is nothing uh, uh, provocative by simply telling, look, you have been by corruptive or other means buying these villas, buying these properties, and you are now waging an aggressive war, just like Hitler's Germany, against a neighboring country, but at the same time you still want to enjoy a great life in the West, which you despise. This is not possible. And, and, and of course, I want to ask you one thing. Uh, you know, you say deputinize, uh, you say a lot of this is, is almost like Hitler after Nazi Germany. Uh, your country has a history with Russia. Of course, it's no, no, not a secret that you were part of the Soviet Union. I wonder, when you look at what's happening, is this Vladimir Putin being a madman or is this someone who's made very clear over 20 years my idea is to restore the USSR because it's greatness for Russia that I'm after in many ways we have been warning already for almost 20 years so he's not a madman this happening. is a plan what is his state of mind personally at this moment it's difficult to say because we don't know the information from the first hands and of course he is um, kind of confused because he was obviously not thinking that this type of war uh, will not survive 
succeed, uh, but at the same time we still have to act in a way that uh, we force all the Russian society also to rethink its stance. And I think it includes also very much of information sphere and, and all the possibility to break this bubble of information which Kremlin is using for their own population. And, and sir, just two very brief questions. There's a real debate about what to do with energy imports. It is becoming clear that your sanctions, and you said this is going to be the mother of all sanctions, but they're not for Russia. They continue to make payments in dollars. Is it time to step it up and target energy? Well, first of all, we have to get out all the Western companies from Russia. It's their moral duty to leave this country now. As far as energy, of course, if the country have been on the gas or oil needle for 20 or 30 years, it's difficult to do it in one day. But imagine the situation, what if that not be Ukraine uh, invaded by Russia, but would be European Union invaded, would be still uh, going to the war and buy gas? So it's, so it's a mistake. So when Germany says uh, the reality is we can't unplug, you, your thinking is that Germany's wrong. You can't do it. Well, it's probably very difficult to do it immediately, but let's put it like this. To be rational at the same time, we probably have to uh, be hyperactive and very fast to unplug as fast as we can. Really as fast as we can and not to think about returning to this anymore. So you say after this is a point of no return, essentially, it's, it's isolation for Russia. But when it comes to Ukraine, there's many out there who believe at this point, this is a hell of a war. It's 26 days. It's been brutal on the Ukrainian population. Just negotiate any ceasefire and get on with it. What's your take on that? Ceasefire is not a way out. The way out is immediate uh, withdrawal of all the Russian troops from Ukrainian territory. There is no other way out. And I would say that Ukrainians, by their blood, paid also for the membership in European Union. So I understand Ukraine cannot become a member today or tomorrow, but there must be a certain fast track established along with the way how we will pay, because we would have to pay for the reconstruction of this country. So I believe that Five years, that would be the limit put also in our planning when we, if everything goes okay, should accept this country as a member country. And, and over the weekend, uh, we saw the Russians say, you have to surrender Mariupol. We also saw them bringing out the big weapons, the hypersonic missiles. When you look at the situation on the ground, do you really believe, seriously, look into your heart, that Ukraine can win this war? Ukraine already won this war. Yes, there will be more sacrifices, but even if Mariupol falls, even if Kiev falls, which I don't think will happen, uh, the struggle will continue because these people have nowhere to retreat. And in fact, I must say also our particularly Western European um, uh, friends and sisters and brothers, also we have nowhere to retreat. This is a way where we have to stand and keep the line because we have been retreating on the front of this aggressor and dictator for too long. And that was our hugest mistake. And just as a final question, I know you have communications with the Ukrainian government. Uh, when you hear from Zelensky, is it obvious to you that this man will either win or die in Ukraine? That's his thinking? He will win. And we should stand with him. Well, sir, thank you so much. Of course, uh, always uh, good to speak to you. And thank you, you certainly are, are very open with uh, your words. Of course, that was Latvia's defense minister, Mr. Pavics, joining us here in Brussels today. Jonathan. Maria, thank you. Wonderful work, as always. Leslie Falconio joins us now, Senior Fixed Income Strategist for the Americas at UBS Global Wealth Management. Leslie, I want to start with this bond market. Can I be blunt? It's bizarre. Coming out of Chairman Powell and the news conference on Wednesday to see break-evens higher, not lower, real yields lower, 
not higher. The curve's starting to invert a little bit. Leslie, can you make sense of this? Why we're pricing almost, in some parts, some pockets of fixed income, it was as if we had a dovish news conference and a dovish meeting. Well, I don't think it's surprising that the short end of the break-evens are actually moving higher. When you think about really what's happening with sanctions and now with Russia and Ukraine and some of the, an increase in the supply chain bottleneck and the increase in oil that we're seeing. But to your point, I mean, having the 10-year break-even reach that 3% level, you know, is not, you know, concerning, but it's something that definitely I believe that the Fed is going to watch going forward. I mean, and I think the real yield rate, you know, our expectation for real yields, at least in the 10-year area, is to move higher. I mean, we do expect break-evens, particularly in the long end, as the Fed starts to become a bit more aggressive, to come down. But that short end, which is really, you know, moved by sentiment and things like oil, might stay, the break-evens might stay high for quite some time. So, Leslie, this is the aspect that really doesn't make sense to me, that not only do we see 10-year Treasury yields still relatively low versus the expectations for inflation over the next 10 years, but also people are pouring money at the fastest pace, uh, some of the fastest paces we've seen in the past decade, if you look at the ETF that tracks the longest uh, dated ETFs. Does this make sense to you that people see value in 2.18% yields on a 10-year note? Well, I think that you know, the expectation is, at least our expectation, is we're only looking for about like a 2.3% 10-year yield. And you have to remember how quickly we've moved. We went from 1.5% in the beginning of the year all the way to a 2.24 within 10 weeks. That is an incredible move. And now that the Fed has, has you know, become fairly aggressive, not to mention the fact we do have QT in May, more than likely, you know, there is a normalization of the yield curve. So I do understand why people would really want to stop and take on some interest rate risk at these levels. Normalization of the yield curve. Let's talk about the yield curve, Leslie's twos tens. Does it invert? If so, when? I think there's a potential that you know choose tens can invert you know in the latter half of the year, but I also think it's important to note that it's not just if it inverts; it's a magnitude of the inversion and how sustainable that inversion is. I mean, we all know when the curve inverts, you know, it's a, it's a coincident indicator in our opinion. You know, two or three years out, you know, it does can indicate a recession. But we look at things like the two-year yield, which went to two percent. I mean, this is some of the biggest moves that we've seen with the Fed only going 25 basis points. Right, that magnitude of the move of the two-year yield. The Fed funds rate would already be at one and a quarter, one and a half by now. Leslie, just looking at the yield curve then, let's sum it up. Threes are basically in line with tens. Five-year yields are above tens. Seven-year yields are above tens. Should that constrain risk appetite elsewhere, or do you think investors will just look through some of this? I think it's really going to depend on real yields. I mean, remember, real yields are still negative. The term premium is still negative. You know, and at the end of the day, again, I know we always say this, but it's true. It really does come down to the consumer. And, you know, real consumption is still still very strong. And let's not forget the majority of consumer debt is mortgages. And the majority of those mortgages are fixed. So, I mean, we do think that obviously there, you could have some headwinds from the inversion, but real yields still remain negative. So, Leslie, what are you actually doing? Well, we've been, you know, our we've had a, a, we would say in the fixed income side, more of a risk on. I mean, our expectation was that interest rates would rise heading into the year. We've liked that floating rate asset, things like senior loans. So we've had a bit of what we consider credit exposure. But now, again, as we start, start to normalize a bit and we've seen this headwind from interest rates going higher and spreads widening, the two variables, which is a major headwind towards total return performance on the fixed income side, you know, may not be a bad time to, you know, go a little bit up in quality. And as we said, even on the rate side, we don't expect interest rates to really move materially higher from here. 
Leslie, thank you for your perspective as always. Leslie Falconia there of UBS Global Wealth Management. We have got a perfect conversation now with Dave Altig, the Executive Vice President and Director of Research at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, the President also of the National Association for Business Economics as well. Dave, to come to you first. That survey is pretty brutal. That's the Fed that these respondents think is going to stay behind the curve. Dave, what's this Fed going to do about it? Well, I mean, the... Uh, the the FOMC is going to do what the FOMC does and, do, and conduct monetary policy, of course, as uh, they uh, deem appropriate uh, to meet the committee's goals. So um, I'm not quite sure the survey is going to move the needle. And it's worth recognizing and remembering that the survey was done uh, a week. It was in the field uh, a week before uh, the meeting itself. So we're not quite certain how that might have moved the needle on sentiment. Uh, I imagine I will be talking to a lot of people today who are going to let me know exactly how it's going to move the needle in the sentiment. Um, but the messages were pretty clear uh, that uh, our, our members on, in NAIB uh, have some concerns about inflation and about the course of Fed policy. Do they think that the Fed is deliberately going to remain behind the curve? Or do they think, Dave, that we're going to get a Fed incapable of curbing inflation at a cycle when it's a lot of supply chain driven issues, when you have a really a conundrum where the only way for them to counter it is to dampen demand at a tenuous recovery moment? Yeah, it's a little bit hard always to kind of uh, interpret uh, what any uh, group of individuals mean when they answer a survey like this. There are a couple of the details sort of in the survey itself, which gives some clues about what might be generating some of this um, not so sanguine view of inflation. Um, Ukraine is very definitely sort of looming large and, it's loom and it shows up in two places really in the survey. In, in the first place, uh, there is a clear sentiment that uh, the situation in Ukraine is going to exacerbate and sort of elongate the process of getting the supply chain disruptions sort of back into order. Yeah. Uh, and the second uh, is a reaction that because of the uncertainty associated with uh, the situation in Ukraine and probably broader geopolitical concerns, that it will create a scenario where um, there will be a more cautious approach than what otherwise would be. So I think in part those are elements uh, underneath uh, the pessimism. I don't think it's a, didn't pick up any sense that it's a belief that the situation with the rate of, with the inflation rate is not being taken seriously or that the pivot towards uh, the inflation fight is uh, being, uh, uh, is just lip service. I just think it's a lot of the confluence of a lot of these other things that are uh, making people a little concerned about whether things will be as aggressive as they would like them. Dave, moving beyond the survey, what's your view on the ground as head of research at the Atlanta Fed, because they do incredible research on GDP, on wages, of the resilience of the American consumer? Well, I mean, we're still detecting virtually no signals of uh, any um, softening of demand when we talk to firms. Uh, and we talk to a lot of them. I mean, we spend a great deal of our time with our boots on the ground 
talking to uh, the people actually making pricing decisions and employment decisions, uh, there really is not much of a signal we're getting that uh, consumer demand is substantially weakening. Um, pricing power appears to not be waning at all, uh, at least from the anecdotal reports, and actually from survey reports as well. And um, there's some, you know, the question is always how long can that last? Um, but no one is sort of uh, ringing the bell about uh, the process of, of fairly strong uh, consumer demand and fairly resilient demand. Uh, that seems to still be the play. On the subject of demand and its inelasticity or elasticity, though, Dave, at what point would you start to expect demand destruction to, to kick in? Is there a historical level that you'd be watching? Um, no. Um, I mean, one of the things that we've obviously been fairly uh, concerned about and tuned into is the waning of the fiscal stimulus, but if you, if you, for example, track consumer spending with uh, wage and salary income, those things track very closely. And th what that means is there was an awful lot of uh, the stimulus that was essentially kept in reserve and not used to um, support uh, in a substantial way uh, spending beyond the early, age, you know, early days of the pandemic. So it would seem just from that sort of information and that sort of data that there, um, uh, there's not a situation where the consumer is way out over their skis and uh, unable to kind of uh, sustain through uh, the uh, fading away of all the support that happened as a result of the pandemic. Hey, Dave, awesome to catch up because I know you've got a busy few days, a busy week ahead of you. So thanks for spending some time with us. Dave Oltick there of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. David Riley joins us now, Chief Investment Strategist at Blue Pay Asset Management. David, I won't ask you a pointed question. I'll ask you an open one. Your reaction to what's happening in this bond market at the moment? Yeah, I think the bond market is... Um, you know, clearly signaling that it's not as bullish as certainly the um, equity market. I mean, I think there is a little bit of a um, sort of disconnect between those two. And if you look at the one year forward, 10 twos is already um, inverted. That being said, I don't think the bond market is necessarily pricing, you know, a, a high um, risk of uh, recession. I think what it's pricing at the longer end is just a wider distribution of outcomes. This uncertainty that, you know, you've been talking about in, in, during the uh, program, you know, where is inflation going to settle? Um, how far is the Fed going to raise rates? And what's the outlook for growth? Not this year, which I think is reasonably uh, going to be reasonably kind of solid. But, you know, as we go into 2023, and uh, 2024. What we do know, and it's getting priced in the two-year note, is that the Fed is on a hiking cycle. Um, they're going to be raising rates 25 basis points um, every uh, every meeting. It's going to start balance sheet reduction as well, and also wants some tightening in financial conditions. And that I think is going to be quite a meaningful headwind for risk assets and particularly for equities. David, if we were to price stagflation in fixed income. And this is not a view of mine, a personal opinion. This is an observation about what is happening in fixed income. You would say what would happen ultimately is that you would start to see an inversion of the yield curve because this market would start to smell out slowing growth. And what you would also see 
is elevated break-evens because this market would believe that even with slowing growth, inflation will remain elevated. And David, I have to say, that's exactly what I could see. Post-Federal Reserve, what we've seen is the curve slowly invert, nominal yields, twos out to tens. We've got three-year yields above tens, five-year yields above tens, seven-year yields above tens. That's nominal sorted. Look at break-evens. At the highs of the year last week, David, on 10-year break-evens, isn't that what stagflation starts to look like in fixed income? I mean, you're right to highlight that, um, Jonathan. But also, I would say, look at the five-year, five-year in terms of inflation break-evens. And that's actually not that far above what you would consider to be, over the medium term, um, the Fed's target. What the market has done and what the bond market's done is say, we've got a stagflationary shock coming from uh, the uh, Russian war on uh, Ukraine. We don't know how severe that's going to be, both in terms of growth and in terms of inflation, because you know, it depends on how that conflict uh, develops, what happens in terms of uh, commodity prices. But but we do know that inflation is going to be higher um, as, as a result of that, particularly in the nearer term. So, you know, clearly the market, I think, is pricing and the bond market, as I say, is pricing a sort of broader distribution of, of, of risk. And I think that's why, you know, we're starting to get a bit of a bid at the longer end. Um, well, that inflationary pressure is feeding through in terms of this, you know, more hawkish view, if you like, in terms of um, the Fed. But, you, you know, I, I actually think now we're pretty fairly priced at the short end. I mean, we've closed our sort of short duration uh, positions at, at, at the short end of the curve because I don't think the Fed's going to be more aggressive than they're setting out at the moment. But what I do think the Fed is clearly signaling and power is very clear, I thought, on this in the press conference is if we want to avoid those stagflationary risks, we need to get to neutral sooner rather than later. So I think, you know, they, they are on a path to a more aggressive or, you know, hence why they've, they've kind of validated that more aggressive path uh, for, for, for rate hikes. And then, you know, let's see what happens in uh, 2023. My bias is actually the Fed will have to do more because of those uh, sticky uh, in, in, in inflation. But right now, I think the market's reasonably well priced, particularly at the short end. David, just quickly here, if you're just as confused as we are, what's the safest asset class right now? Uh, the safest asset class. I think, I mean, where I would go and where we've been, you know, at the margin adding some uh, risk is is basically, uh, for example, in, in, in credit. I mean, the credit market, you know, is the other part of the broader bond market, and it's not signaling near-term recession risk. But we've seen a pretty meaningful um, repricing both in yield and spread terms. And I think you're getting adequately compensated for the default risk over the you know, next uh, 12 months or so. So um, I actually do like some of um, you know, uh, parts of the credit market. And in places like uh, within structured credit, getting exposure to the US consumer through, for example, uh, mortgage securities and other structured um, credit, I think, as your previous guest was highlighting, uh, the US consumer is still proving to be pretty resilient. So if you're a little bit cautious around sort of corporate risk, I think actually US consumer risk is a good place to uh, take exposure. Interesting. David Riley, thank you, sir. Fantastic to catch up with Blue Bay Asset Management. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.